Our scripture passage today is Ephesians 4, 28-30. He who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good, so that he will have something to share with one who has need. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such as a word as is good for edification, according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. We're in a section of Ephesians here where Paul is giving specific examples of what it means to no longer walk as the Gentiles walk and to lay aside the old self or old man and put on the new self or new man. And last week we considered laying aside falsehood and putting on truth-telling and different examples of that, which is an application of the ninth commandment. Uh, We also considered be angry and do not sin in that anger, which is an application of the sixth commandment. And today, in verse 28, we consider laying aside stealing in connection with the eighth commandment and putting on charitable giving. Um, as a, I don't know if you call it a disclaimer or just sort of a, a newsflash, um, there are certain sermons that condemn the minister more than others. <laughs> that when you're going through a book of the Bible, you come across passages and you're like, oh, ouch, and I've got to preach on that. And my children are going to be out there in the pew going, you know, <laughs> does he realize what uh, that he's talking about himself here? Yes, I do. Uh, I do. Um, and so that's part of the humiliation of, of being a preacher. And uh, thankfully, the Lord has not let me uh, just hopefully stand up here and pretend otherwise and uh, pretend that I've got everything. Uh, under control, everything, uh, I've fully arrived, I'm fully sanctified, I don't have any more um, sins to repent of, I do. And today we'll talk about some of those. Uh, The old man is a thief, the new man is a giver. When you lay aside the old man, you lay aside a selfish person who thinks just about himself and his own desires, which he calls needs. The old man is willing that others should lose so that he might gain. He steals money and possessions and other things from people because he feels like he deserves them more than they do. He needs such things more than they need them. He ought to have those things, them not so much. At the heart of all stealing is a selfish, self-centered megalomaniac who thinks the world revolves around him. He thinks he should be the best. He should be first. He should be preferred. So if you are a thief, think about this. You're in the company of men like Achan and Judas. The sin that plunged the world into ruin was stealing. Adam and Eve stole from God by taking fruit that did not belong to them belong to God and they have the gall to steal from God and of course all kinds of other sins were bound up in that heart sins, pride, lust, covetousness, idolatry, spiritual adultery, unbelief and really suicide if you think about it 
We all inherited a thieving nature from Adam and were born to this, into this world as little thieves. Have you ever seen two infants playing on the floor and one of them just takes something out of the other infant's hand, just snatches it away, takes it right out of their hand? Have you ever seen how many little toddlers covet attention and do what they can to steal the attention away from others? You know, I have the floor here, get the spotlight on me. They interrupt when other people are talking with the, you know, stealing away other people's conversation, their attention from someone else. It doesn't matter that you were talking to him. I, I want attention now. That's stealing. Uh, they interrupt, they whine, they throw fits when they don't get their way, they talk too much, they create a scene, they try too hard to be funny, they perform for the audience, it's all to get attention and to steal it. Have you ever seen a young child who can barely stand for one of his siblings or a friend to have a special birthday celebration and get all the attention, he really wants it for himself, he can't stand for there to be a birthday and it not be his and all those are examples of stealing, stealing the attention. We're born that way. There's one cookie left in the jar and, you know, never mind that I have multiple siblings that might want it to, I'll go take it and then ask for forgiveness later if I'm discovered. And of course, there's all kinds of things that we can steal besides money and possessions and cookies. Um, kidnapping is stealing. It's man-stealing. That's what King James translates it, men-stealing. Rape is a form of theft. Fornication is stolen fruit and often stealing another person's virginity. Bearing false witness against someone is stealing their reputation. Adultery is stealing someone else's spouse. Murder is stealing the life of another person. Suicide is stealing my own life and stealing from those who love me and now have to live with the aftermath of what I've done and the pain and the joy they would have had in my life if I commit suicide. If you are a, pro a provider for others and you commit suicide, you're stealing provision from those who depended on you to provide. Boasting is stealing from God, not giving Him credit. Or if we're just simply not thankful to God and praising Him for the good things He's done for us, we're stealing glory and honor and credit that God deserves to have. Forgetting and forsaking the Sabbath day is, I mean, by not going to church, not gathering with God's people to worship, that's robbing God of worship. Not tithing is robbing God. We're told that in Malachi 3, 8 through 10. Will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In tithes and offerings, you are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, so that there may be food in my house. And test me now in this, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows. So how selfish can you be when you think that keeping 90% of what God gives you is not enough? How much should God get? 5% instead of 10 one, zero. You might think, oh, come on, God doesn't need the money. That's exactly the mindset of a thief. He doesn't need it. I need it. And of course, with God, it doesn't have anything to do with need. You know, worship, God doesn't need our worship, but we're still obligated to render it. 
and I'm stealing it from him if I don't. In addition to these forms of theft, this is the example of stealing by not paying taxes. Romans 13, 7 through, through 8. This is something we don't really want to hear, but render to all what is due to them. Tax to whom tax is due. Custom to whom custom. Fear to whom fear. Honor to whom honor. Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another, for he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. We can steal time from other people by wasting their time. We can steal from our employer by being lazy and very unproductive. We can steal from other taxpayers by purposely being lazy and living off the government when we could be working. Able-bodied men sit at intersections in our cities and off-ramps of busy streets to beg money from people, and yet it appears that they can walk and it appears that they can find transportation. They don't actually live right there. They don't, there's no tent you see right there. They've walked there or driven there or ridden the, rode the bus or something. They're in good enough health to stand on a street corner for hours. Surely that could be turned to standing at a job for hours. There's a number of jobs that require no more effort than the effort put forth by those men doing that. Why aren't they working? People steal from churches by begging money for them, from them, ostensibly for food or gasoline. We've had that here. But how do they manage to get in their car and drive down the road to a particular destination without enough money in hand to arrive at the destination? Didn't plan very well. It's because they planned to mooch off churches along the way to fund their travels or something else. And the mentality seems to be, I shouldn't have to go to extra effort to work, to have enough money to travel somewhere, you should work to provide me the money to get where I want to go. And that's stealing. Who would moochers mooch off of if no one was working? To be a mooch, there has to be a bunch of people who aren't doing what you're doing. They have to have a work ethic and be gainfully employed. Otherwise, you've got no one to mooch off of. If you're going to steal from others, it helps to have some people have jobs. It's the same thing with medical care. People who refuse to get insurance or work hard enough to afford insurance, I recognize it's very expensive, but then show up at emergency rooms for free medical care. It's not free. The hospital charges self-pay patients for what you're not paying for. Or they'll raise costs somewhere to cover it. So those who are paying, and maybe it's insurance companies, but those insurance companies aren't working for free. They're getting their money out of the pockets of people who are having to pay higher premiums to cover these kinds of things. The point is, hospitals are not charitable organizations. They don't do it for free. And the one who shows up for free medical care with no intention to pay doesn't necessarily think about who's paying for this free medical care, but that's not what matters. What matters is the mindset, I should get free medical care. Others, whoever they are, should pay for it. Others should donate their services for free. Others should pay more at the hospital so people like me can come in and get it free because I deserve that. They don't. They should work to make that possible for me who deserves it. That's the mentality. And that mentality can creep into the church as well. It did at Thessalonica. 
2 Thessalonians 3, 6-15. Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from every brother who leads an unruly life and not according to the tradition which you receive from us. And you'll see here in the context that unruly means lazy, and the tradition is not like Roman Catholic traditions, but a tradition of working for your own food. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example, because we did not act in an undisciplined manner among you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with labor and hardship, we kept working night and day so that we would not be a burden to any of you. Not because we do not have the right to this, He's speaking there as a minister of the gospel. But in order to offer ourselves as a model for you, so that you would follow our example. For even when we were with you, we used to give you this order. If anyone is not willing to work, then he is not to eat either. For we hear that some such persons, uh, we hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. Now such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to work in quiet fashion and eat their own bread. But as for you, brethren, do not grow weary of doing good. If anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of that person and do not associate with him so that he will be put to shame. Yet do not regard him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. So there were people in the church at Thessalonica that were not working, but funny thing, Though they, were not, though they were willing to do without work, they were not willing to do without food. But whose food should they eat since they didn't have a job? Their thought was that they should get to eat the food of working folks. So they're mooching. And you see the arrogance. I should be exempt from working like other people have to. I should get to spend my time playing, sleeping, lollygagging, pursuing hobbies or whatever, and you should keep your job to fund my expenses. In other words, you should be my slave. I shouldn't have to work, but you should. Otherwise, who's going to subsidize my standard of living? And because the Thessalonian sluggards had a lot more free time on their hands than the working folks, they had the liberty, quote-unquote, of being busybodies and meddling in the affairs of the working class. When you don't have a job to occupy your time, you have all kinds of time on your hands. And, you know, the boredom can get to you. So then you start looking at what other people are doing and nitpicking and meddling in their affairs. Since you don't have affairs to occupy your time, you have to meddle in theirs. That's what they were doing, meddling in the affairs of others. One last example of stealing that I'll mention is what our government does through debt. Our government has now for decades been stealing from future generations of Americans by saddling them with incomprehensible debt that has to be serviced by our children and grandchildren. And that's stealing. When you have a spending spree now to service your pleasures, that's going to have to be paid for by your children and grandchildren. You're essentially stealing disposable income from them. They're going to have to live far tighter than you did. They will have to do without a number of things you said you couldn't live without. And it's not just true of government, of course. The 
It's true when a husband racks up debt that his wife has to pay after he dies, or vice versa. Or when one in the, the marriage, one spouse runs up exorbitant bills and then pursues divorce and then makes the other spouse in the divorce arrangement pay for all the debt they racked up. Or that's stealing. Or when parents rack up debt and bequeath it to their children, that's stealing. Notice what repentance is, according to verse 28. It is not just he who steals must steal no longer, stop. No, it's further than that. It's a complete 180. He who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good, so that he will have something to share with one who has need. So the particular kind of stealing Paul has in mind here that he's talking about with the church in Ephesus is not working and mooching off of other people. Stop doing that and go to work. Perform with your own hands what is good so that you will have something to share with one who has need. So it's not just go to work so that you won't be a burden on others. Yeah, but go to work so you'll have extra to give to people who are truly in need. There are people that are truly in need. There are people who've been hit with calamity. There are true widows who are needy. There are orphans who are needy. There are people who are disabled and not able to do any kind of work. There are good missionaries who need help. Help those people. Have something to help them with. But you have to have money to help them. And in order to have money, you have to have a job. So it's a complete reversal from the selfishness of the old man, the old self. The old self thinks about how he can take advantage of working people. The new man thinks of how he can work to have extra to help those who are in need. Objection? Well, I can't find a job. Answer? Baloney. What you can't find is a designer job that perfectly checks all the boxes on your unreasonable list of uh, expectations. There's all kinds of jobs out there you can do. And doing one of them is far better than naysaying all the other jobs or dreaming about your dream job while mooching off other people who are working, probably not their dream job either. Working at just about any job is better than not working and mooching. Verse 29. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such as a word is good for edification according to the need of the moment so that it will give grace to those who hear. Now, this is laying aside the old self and putting on the new self, putting off the Gentile way and putting on the Christ-like way and this is repentance applied to the tongue. And since Paul already addressed in verse 25 earlier the sin of lying or laying, laying aside falsehood, it's likely that he has other tongue sins in mind here. The word translated unwholesome in the NES can also be translated rotten, worthless, corrupting. 
And we can discern what is meant by that term by virtue of how it's contrasted with the opposite. The opposite is edifying. What's edifying? What gives grace to those who hear? So really anything that's not edifying and that doesn't give grace to hear, uh, to those who hear, is a rotten, corrupting, unwholesome word. Let's talk grumbling and complaining. Isn't that rotten, worthless, and corrupting? Does grumbling edify anyone? Does it give grace to any hearer? Does it encourage people, benefit them? Does it help them think noble thoughts? No, of course not. The Old Testament examples were written for our instruction, and the lesson of the grumbling Israelites is an enduring one. Numbers 14, 1 through 3, Then all the congregation lifted up their voices and cried, and the people wept that night. All the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become plunder. Would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? Their their grumblings were rotten, unwholesome, corrupting words, which discouraged the rest of the people. They didn't foster faith. They, They fostered doubt and unbelief. And when we grumble and complain, we fix other people's minds, not just ours, but on other people's, not on what's praiseworthy, We fix their mind on what's wrong, not what's right. We don't edify them. We don't help them to give thanks to God, which is every man's duty. When we are naysayers and doubters, we fix not only our minds, but the minds of others on wind and waves, problems, what might go wrong, what should go wrong. We discourage people from expectant prayer. Now, why bother? It's not going to do any good. Naysayer. Philippians 2, 14 through 15 says, Do all things without grumbling or disputing so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world. So the idea you get there is that the world is full of grumblers and complainers, and we know it is, and we know that we are grumblers and complainers by nature, but we are to be, as Christians, lights in the world, in the darkness, to appear as lights in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation by not being grumblers. Grumbling can take many forms. We think of it most often as just I'm expressing frustration with my circumstances. But there's other aspects that could really be called or different manifestations of grumbling. What about just being a negative person? How often I have been that. The cup is half empty rather than half full. We're thinking of something that is the opposite of edification here. The opposite of building others up the opposite of giving grace to the hearer. Someone is trying to accomplish something, and it's good, and I come along and discourage them with my pessimism. I haven't edified them. I haven't built them up. 
Think, you're wasting your time here. That's not going to work. Well, maybe it won't work. Maybe what I need to say is, I wonder if there's a different way you could do that, which might be more likely to succeed. In that case, I would be encouraging them to continue, but hopefully helping them toward a better strategy. Let's, you know, let's lose a, use a screwdriver on that screw, not a hammer. Um, excessive criticism. If we're always criticizing and never commending people, if we're always pointing out what people do wrong and never pointing out what they do right, if we're always finding fault, isn't that a form of grumbling? Nagging, isn't that a form of complaining repeatedly about something in order to force someone to give in and do it our way after all? Is nagging edifying? Does that build up others? Does it give grace to the hearer? No. One of the ways we can discourage others is by expressing our fears. That's what the ten spies did. That's sort of the context of that Numbers 14 passage. They were afraid. They didn't believe they could defeat the Canaanites with God's help. And they expressed that fear and then started grumbling against God and Moses, suggesting that they had been brought into the wilderness only to die. And what they should have done is shut up. Threw their hand over their mouth. If you're afraid... You should be quiet. Don't discourage everyone else by talking. In Deuteronomy 20, God gave Israel several regulations for the army regarding warfare. And in verse 8, he said, Then the officers shall speak further to the people and say, Who is the man that is afraid and faint-hearted? Let him depart and return to his house, so that he might not make his brother's hearts melt like his heart. Fear is contagious. And because it is, if we're fearful, we should throw our hand over our mouth. Just because you're afraid doesn't mean you should make everyone else afraid. To spread fear is just another way of complaining about a situation. And it's not edifying, it's not building up others, it's not giving grace to the hearers. That could be applied to church discipline. I've seen that a few times. If church discipline is the duty before us, what we ought to do, and we need to press on and do it, then we don't need fearful naysayers telling us how badly it will go, how it won't work, how they'll just go down to the church down the street, how this or that expected consequence will follow, the church will split, people will leave, whatever. We don't need that. It's not edifying. It's not building up those who see the duty, the need that we have to carry out the duty before us that God has given us. If somebody is going to give money sacrificially in faith and they are trusting that God will provide for them in it and not punish them for their generosity, then they don't need naysayers to come in and warn them about how they'll probably suffer for doing so and how stupid they are for giving so much. To be a doubter and a naysayer is to put yourself in the company of the grumbling Israelites. Gossip. That's another example of unwholesome and rotten and corrupting speech. And the scripture uses different words for gossip. It could include things that are true but don't need to be shared. 
with others or things that are speculative, things we really don't know and can't prove, but we're speculating, I bet such and such. I bet he's doing this. I bet he meant that, but we don't know. Or things that are flat out lies. Proverbs eleven thirteen says, He who goes about as a talebearer reveals secrets, but he who is trustworthy conceals a matter. If someone tells you something in confidence, and then you tell others because you cannot resist the temptation, you're engaging in tailbearing. If you know that's a weakness for you, as soon as somebody says, I need to tell you a secret, you better just say to them, don't. Don't tell me. I'm a blabbermouth, I'm not trustworthy. Proverbs 18.8, the words of a whisperer are like dainty morsels and they go down into the innermost parts of the body. The whisperer has enticing things to tell. Things he's heard, things she saw, and she's eager to tell you about them. Do you know what I overheard Mary talking about with Jim? Do you know what I saw Jack doing? Do you know how much money Gary makes? Whose business is this? Proverbs 20:19. He who goes about as a slander reveals secrets, therefore do not associate with a gossip. Proverbs 26, 20 through 22, for lack of wood, the fire goes out, and where there is no whisperer, contention quiets down. Conflicts and find out that the reason the conflict is gets worse and gets, you know, continues on longer than it should have is there's some whisperer going around and fanning flames all the time. Like charcoal to hot embers and wood to fire, so is a contentious man to kindle strife. The words of a whisperer are like dainty morsels and they go down into the innermost parts of the body. A slanderer may be someone who speaks evil of another person falsely, but it's also slander to speak evil of someone even if the information is true when it isn't necessary that you say such things. The only reason we've been talking what we were talking about today in Sunday school is because I feel a necessity. You know, because... Paul naming names when it comes to false teaching, false teachers. But if it's not necessary, we don't need to say it. With any given person, including you and me, there's a wealth of true and unflattering things that could be talked about in any conversation. And the issue is not there whether it's true. The issue is, do they need to be talked about? What is the compelling reason here? Sometimes you have to speak true and unflattering things about someone else. For instance, when you need to warn someone about a particular person. If a man that, that you know of is a, is a thief and you see that your friend is about to hire him, you may want to warn your friend about him. If a girl you know is mean and a bully and a friend of yours is about to hire her as a babysitter, you might want to warn the babysitter about hiring her. If a man is a false prophet and he's invited to preach at another church or a conference or he has the potential to have influence, it's good to warn people about that false prophet. But there's a lot of things that we don't need to say about others, even though they're true. If it isn't necessary that the information be known, then we don't need to say it. If no one's going to be harmed by not knowing it, then why do we need to say it? No justifiable reason why 
person A needs to know some dirt about person B. When you're tempted to speak something bad about someone else, ask yourself the simple question, does this person I'm talking to need to know this? Is this really helpful to him or her? Would it be loving to tell it or not? And if not, don't. It's gossip. It's unwholesome, rotten, corrupting speech. Insults are unwholesome, corrupting speech. We should not speak insultingly to other people. In Matthew 5, 22, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus applies the sixth commandment there and says, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court, and whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court, and whoever says, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. Now, the Bible tells us that there are fools in this world, probably no shortage of them, and it goes into a fair amount of detail describing for us what a fool is, how he acts, how he speaks, how he behaves, and it is legitimate for us to assess certain people as fools due to the fact that their behavior matches the Bible's description, but that's different than to insult someone as a fool. We could rebuke someone out of loving concern and tell them they are being foolish. We could tell them that they're acting like a fool and call them away from that. But there's a difference between that that we would say out of loving concern for them and simply saying, you fool, in a malicious way, or you idiot, you moron, or any such other insult. Profanity. Is another example of unwholesome, corrupting speech. And this is so rampant in our society. There are people who seem to be unable to speak a single sentence without lacing it with cuss words. It's hard now to go into a business and not just hear the shopkeepers, the people, the people who work there, using profanity. This is a symptom of other problems in the culture. For one thing, on a lesser note, it's just a, it's symptomatic of our terrible education and our abysmally small vocabularies. It's a symptomatic of a simmering anger beneath the surface that is pervasive in the population. I believe that anger is a big part of the reason that people are so profane. They pull out all the stops and they run quickly to the most extreme thing possible to say. And then having said the sharpest and hardest and most cutting thing they have in all their vocabulary to say, and having spent that quickly, where do they go from there? All you can do is keep repeating the same. It's also symptomatic of the complete failure of parenting and the abdication of parenting. Parents simply don't teach their children morals and manners anymore. And that's true going back a few generations. So we have children now raising children who didn't learn it themselves and what can they teach their children when they didn't learn any morals themselves? If they're profane, if the 30 and 40 and 50 year olds are all profane in the way they talk, what, what do we expect of the, the children growing up? Coarse jesting is unwholesome, corrupting speech. In Ephesians 5, 4, Paul mentions this, and we'll get to that later and expand on it. I'm not going to preach that passage now. 
but while we're looking and just enumerating examples of unwholesome speech, that is one of them. And coarse jesting would include dirty jokes, sexual innuendos, base bathroom humor, etc. It's not edifying. It doesn't give grace to those who hear. According to James 3, the tongue is one of the most destructive forces on the planet. The tongue is small but boasts of great things. It is a fire, the very world of iniquity, the apostle says. It defiles the entire body and sets on fire the course of our lives. No one can tame it. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. That's how the apostle describes the tongue. It's like a nuclear bomb, only worse. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come both blessing and cursing. We are commanded in our passage here to let no unwholesome word proceed from our mouths, not one single word. Really? Is the law of God that stringent? Can't we mess up a few times? Don't I get a few mulligans? A few freebies per day? Not according to the text. Let no unwholesome word. Somehow that seems a bit more poignant than if he had said the plural, words. Like not one word. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment so that it will give grace to those who hear. Well, we tend to take words lightly, don't we? Just words. But God doesn't take words lightly. Every word that we speak is a matter for judgment day. Jesus said that in Matthew 12, 33-37. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. And then he indicates that when he says fruit, he means words. I mean, it's, it is wider than that, but that's the immediate application. You brood of vipers, how can you, being evil, speak what is good? You can't because you're evil. And out of your mouth then comes has to come evil because you're evil. For the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. The good man brings out of his good treasure what is good, and the evil man brings out of his evil treasure what is evil. But I tell you that every careless word that people speak they shall give an accounting for it in the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Just think of all the unwholesome words that have come out of our mouths. It is beyond conception. Imagine what a horrible day, judgment day, will be for everyone who has rejected Christ as Savior. Every careless word that people speak, they'll give an accounting for it in the day of judgment. If someone wanted to torture me, one way they could do it is lock me up in a cell and play a loud recording of every unwholesome word I've ever spoken. 
It would not only be cringeworthy, it would be excruciating. It would be really, I don't want to hear this. I'm so thankful for a Savior who took my filthy mouth and suffered all the punishment my sins deserved, my sinful actions, my sinful words, my sinful thoughts. I am so thankful for His perfect righteousness imputed to me by faith. I could never be saved if it were on works, based on works. I am so grateful for free grace. I am grateful for a perfect Savior who suffered perfectly and completely in my place instead of me, not with me. Leaving no suffering for me to complete. And I know that everyone here who is saved feels likewise. And so let's show our gratitude by not by running our mouths with unwholesome words, just as we did as when we're lost and dead in sin, but using our mouths as instruments of righteousness to edify and build up. That's what Paul is telling us in verse 30 when he says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. To grieve the Spirit is to make him sorrowful. I think about God getting angry and about God being offended with our sin, but we often don't think about grieving him. Yet that's the word Paul chooses here. And I don't want to draw too much of a distinction between anger and grief, but perhaps it's helpful. There's mysteries here because we're dealing with God who cannot be surprised, cannot discover things and learn things. And, and so, you know, those expressions, his anger burned and, you know, he's sorry he made man. And I, there's mysteries there and there's lots of fights and arguments about those <laughs> expressions. But uh, perhaps it's helpful to think about it this way. Grief implies love in a way that anger sometimes doesn't. Speaking from a human standpoint, sinful things that I see done by strangers out in the world that I don't have any particular love of delight in, you know, I just, I don't know them. Um, so there's a love your neighbor as yourself kind of love, but there's no delight there in them. I don't know them and I'm looking at something they do that's very angering they might make me angry, but not necessarily grieve me. But if something my family does, or my friends do sinfully, that grieves me. There's an aspect of disappointment rooted in love. And when we sin, we grieve the Holy Spirit of God. And just about any sound pastor or commentator that you would read on this subject will tell you that when the Spirit is grieved, He withdraws from us. The 1689 Confession speaks of that in the chapter on assurance. Uh, chapter 18 says this, True believers may have the assurance of their salvation diverse ways shaken, diminished, and intermitted, as by negligence and preserving of it, by falling into some special sin which wounds the conscience and grieves the spirit by some sudden or vehement temptation by God's withdrawing the light of his countenance and suffering even such as fear him to walk in darkness and to have no light yet are they never destitute of the seed of God and life of faith that love of Christ and the brethren, that sincerity of heart and conscience of duty, 
out of which, by the operation of the Spirit, this assurance may in due time be revived, and by the which, in the meantime, they are preserved from utter despair. So grieving the Spirit can hinder assurance. And in the context of Ephesians 4, we grieve the Holy Spirit when we indulge in unwholesome and unedifying speech, when we grumble and complain, when we're excessively negative, when we're hypercritical, when we insult others, when we gossip, when we slander, when we nag, when we speak profanity and indulge in coarse jesting. And really, the whole list of Gentile walk behaviors listed here in this chapter are things that grieve the Holy Spirit. And so that includes walking in ignorance, hardness of heart, sensuality, impurity, falsehood, unrighteous anger, stealing, mooching, laziness, those things mentioned. Also in the last two verses, which we'll look at next week, bitterness, wrath, clamor, slander, malice, unforgiveness. When we walk in these ways, particularly in a persistent and stubborn way, we grieve the Holy Spirit of God. If he withdraws from us for a time, we are going to feel it. We're going to feel the loss of communion with God. We will feel a loss of power in the midst of our duties. We will doubt God's love for us because the light of his countenance is turned away from us. Paul says that believers have been sealed by the Holy Spirit for the day of redemption. That doesn't mean sealing like, you know, like a welder seals a lid on the top of a container or something like that. That's not the kind of sealing the scripture is referring to. Sealing refers to a stamp, a seal of ownership like a signet ring that is put in the, the wax or the ink and then stamped on something, indicating that's mine. Um, Pilate putting a seal on the tomb. You know, hereby closed on the authority of the Roman government. If the king's seal is put on something, it indicates he owns it, it belongs to him. And then likewise, when we are sealed with the Holy Spirit, we are stamped with the Spirit as his possession, as belonging to God, that's mine. That's my son. That's my daughter. So let us not grieve the Holy Spirit by whom we have been marked as God's possession. Let's pray. Father, forgive us for our sins. Forgive us for stealing. Forgive us for our our laziness. Forgive us for our taking advantage of others. Forgive us for our mouth, our tongue, our lies, our falsehoods, our grumbling and complaining, our nagging, our profanity, our coarse jesting, our uh, insulting speech, all the things that we have done, Lord, the ways that our mouth has been a world of iniquity and full of deadly poison. Uh, Cleanse our mouth Wash it out with your soap. Help us, Lord, to speak what is good, speak what is right, speak according to the law of love. Help us to think about how we might edify other people. 
and um, give grace to those who hear us and help us uh, for we are weak and uh, temptations are strong and habits are ingrained. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.